Good evening. It's good to see you tonight. I hate to break up your fun, uh, but I'm sorry. Romans chapter 5 is where we are this evening, and we have much ground to cover, many things to talk about. We spent a lot of time talking about much more last week, so I will not go back over that. Somebody did tell me one time recently, they said, well, it doesn't matter when you start class. You'll tell us what you told us last week. In the business, we call that review. <laughs> but we're not going to do that tonight because we don't have time. Romans chapter 5, we're going to pick up with verse number 12. This last section, 12 to 21, will take us through the end of chapter 5. We'll try to make it there tonight. This section has to do with uh, Adam and Christ. Uh, Christ is called the second Adam in Scripture. There is a study called Types and Antitypes, and that is certainly a worthy study. Adam is a type of Christ. Types, the Old Testament. Antitypes, the New Testament. Justification will be explained. Benefits of that justification. Sin, the problem. And he'll talk about sin and death, and that's where we'll spend our time tonight. We'll read it all, come back, and we'll spend most of our time talking about verse number 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not impunent when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. These ones, as you're going backwards and forwards again, refer to Adam and Christ. Adam is the one who brought the sin. Christ is the one who overcomes the sin. And that's kind of the, the back and forth that you're reading there. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go back up to verse number 12. It kind of sets the stage for all that's said, and it really serves as the point of our discussion tonight. And that is, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This passage here, I'm going to urge, has so much to do with our understanding of, well, nearly everything in Scripture, and it, it bears our attention tonight. So let's talk about death, and let's talk about this spreading to all men and all having sinned or all having come under this death that spread upon them. In talking about death, if you just go to standard dictionaries and begin to try to define death, what you will find is a lot of talk about 
function of the human body. So you will find things like uh, the cessation of vital organs and these sorts of things, brain activity, heart failure, and all of this. And that will largely leave out, if not always, the eternal part of man. It will leave out our soul. And so if we want to find out these things, we have to go to Scripture. But before we talk about death, we need to talk about life because life helps us understand death. So if you have your Bibles, look quickly at John chapter 1. We usually quote these first four verses and uh, with reference to our Lord being divine, and that's certainly true. John says many things about Jesus, though, and among the things he says about him, I should say the Word, he says many things about the Word, among the things he says is, in him is life. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are being, or came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Notice verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So, life originates, has its origin in the divine. And so, God is called eternal life. That life gave rise to our lives. What John is saying is that eternal life took on flesh and became one of us. And so, the apostles could say in 1 John 1, in the first three of verses, we saw him, we handled him, we touched him, eternal life. This life is what gave rise to our lives. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that God made man in his image. And Genesis 2 tells us that God breathed the breath of life into man, and he became a living soul. And so, since God is spirit, John 4, 24, God is spirit, what he breathed into us is spirit. We are his offspring, Acts 17, 29. And so then when we talk about life, we're talking about that which God gave to humanity from himself, that part of us that will live eternally, the spirit of man. When we talk about death then, we aren't necessarily only, we are not talking purely about vital functions and organs. That's not life. And that's certainly not the sum total of life. God is the one who will tell us what death is because God is the one who tells us what life is, and God does. God's definition of death can be found in James chapter 2. If you have your Bibles and you look there at James chapter 2, James is discussing faith, and he is talking about how faith and works go together, that works give life to faith, and that if there is no work, then faith would be dead, and that's exactly what he says in verse number 20 beginning. James says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is, King James would say, dead. It's dead. Why is it dead? It doesn't have works. And so what does works do to faith? It gives it life. And if you take away the works, then James says, it's dead. Well, in that same context, down in verse 26, James says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, 
so also faith without works is dead. There is the biblical definition of death. It is a body without a spirit. When the spirit leaves the body, we are left with just that. And so we take the body and we bury it. In Scripture, this can be seen in two ways. The first example is when a spirit or soul leaves a body. Genesis 35 is where you would want to turn for this first example. This is the example of Rachel giving birth to Benjamin. Beginning in verse 16, the Bible says, They journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrathah. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died, was buried in the way to Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem. You can see in the passage the expression, as her soul was in departing. As her soul was leaving her body, once that was done, she died. That's what James says. The body without the spirit, that's what death is. The second example is that in reverse. Luke chapter 8, verse number 51 is where we'll start. Jesus was asked to come to someone's home, and he was told that they had died, a member of the family. Beginning in verse 51, the Bible says, And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James, and John and the father of the mother of the maiden, and all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed in the scorn. And knowing that she was dead, he put them all out. He took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway. He commanded to give her meat. Here, James' words are shown in reverse. If the body without the spirit is dead, then the spirit in the body is life. Nobody can do what Jesus did today, but that's the biblical definition of death. And so as you and I talk about that in Romans chapter 5 and try to understand that, we began with that understanding of life and death. What Paul wrote was, by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And then he says, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We should note that Paul does not mean that we inherit Adam's sin. He does not mean that. No one can inherit sin. Ezekiel 18.4, Ezekiel 18.20, and we would be at a loss to do anything with Jesus. He can't be born of a woman and somehow escape being born of, a sin, of sin if we indeed inherit Adam's sin. He was born of a woman. He's one of us. But the Bible says very plainly, Jesus did no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. So, Paul doesn't mean that Adam's sin passed on to all men. But he does say something did. He says death passed on to all men as a result of Adam's sin. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 2 as we seek to understand that then. 
In Genesis chapter 2, we read in verses 15 to 17 the command of God relative to the tree to Adam and Eve. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Now, what did God mean? What kind of death is he talking about? And this is where the discussions begin. And people have taken different positions. Some believe this is physical death, others spiritual death. Some have gotten very creative in trying to deal with the fact that they didn't die immediately. I heard at least one person suggest this. One day with the Lord, they said, is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day, 2 Peter 3, 8. And then they said, Adam lived to be 930. And so he died within one day. <laughs> I've heard people say that. It's creative, but it's, it's not right. Some have suggested that Adam did die that day, and they would urge he died spiritually. And this one is probably the more commonly believed approach, that Adam and Eve died that day spiritually. They argue, those who believe this, argue that death means separation. And when God put them out of the garden, they died spiritually and were separated from God. I would argue both of these positions are wrong. I would further argue that the positions we take here is the start of our success or problems the rest of the way in the Bible. When we struggle later with faithfulness to God and we struggle with keeping his commandments and whether or not we're saved, it starts here. We'll get to those concerns momentarily, but the only question to ask is what does the Bible say? That's always the question. So what does the Bible say? What does the Bible mean? Let's study that tonight and appreciate what Paul is saying with regards to Adam. Let's begin with the definition. That's always a good place to start. What does the word, how is it defined? Well, the word here in Genesis 2, 15 to 17, this word means to die. It means to kill, to have one executed. Strong says to die, literally or figuratively, causatively, to kill. With that in mind, let's make a few observations. First, it's not figurative because there's nothing figurative in Genesis 2. The trees, the rivers, the people, the animals, the language, it's all literal. And one of the first keys in understanding the Bible is the Bible is to be taken literally unless something in the context demands a figurative explanation. There's nothing figurative in this context, number one. Number two, the meaning of die or death is die or death. That's what it means. As the body without the spirit is dead. That's what it means. Death does not mean separation. It doesn't. It means death. Now, it causes separation, but it doesn't mean separation. It means death, to die, to kill, to have one executed. In fact, the word is used twice in the passage. One preacher's assessment was, dying thou shalt die. It's a violent physical death. It's just a death. That's what it means. Third, the other usages of death and any figurative use is revealed well after Genesis 2. Fourth, the figurative is never the first and primary meaning. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 Corinthians 15 and listen to Paul talk about this, not relating to death, but to the resurrection. And notice what he says. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, as he talks about the resurrection, beginning in verse number 40, Paul says, but some men will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? So there's our thought. How are the dead raised up? We're talking about the resurrection. And with reference to the body, which he just referenced, and with what body do they come, he'll use the word it with reference to the body. And he'll say, it is sown in, in corruption. It is raised in corruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body, and so it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is of the Lord from heaven. And as the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. God's definition of death is James' definition. That's the definition, and that's the one that's used in the garden, I'm going to urge. As Paul discussed the resurrection, standing again, he moves seamlessly between life and death. You take a natural body, you sow it, it's going to be raised a spiritual body. Paul says that which is natural is first. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual but that which is natural. Afterward, the spiritual. Christ, the spiritual, didn't come first. Adam, the physical, did. That's the way it works in the Bible all the way through. First the natural, then the spiritual. We don't start with the spiritual. Adam would have known nothing of a concept called spiritual death. Wouldn't have had any idea what that meant because the spiritual is not first. He would have thought of his natural body. In fact, I would urge that's supported by his reaction and his conversation with God. Adam's own words back in Genesis chapter 3, when God came to him, his own words were, I was afraid. I would ask, of what? I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, what's he afraid of? He's not afraid of being put out of the garden. That's not what he's afraid of. The reason I know he's not afraid of that is he doesn't even know that's going to happen. You can't know what hasn't been revealed. God hasn't revealed that to Adam yet. When God says that in Genesis 2, Adam doesn't know a thing about being put out of the garden. And yet Adam says, I was afraid. Afraid of what? He's afraid of the only punishment he heard. You will die. When God created Adam and Eve, he provided them not simply life. He put the tree of life in the garden. The tree of life is also there. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, we don't have to wonder about what this tree was capable of doing because God tells us. And it's also one of the reasons that God says he drives the man from the garden. This is Genesis 3 beginning in verse 22. The Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life 
What's the Godhead's concern with Adam at this point? That he will eat of the tree and live forever, I would ask, in what state? I've never heard anybody suggest that Adam would live spiritually forever. Oh, he would have lived physically forever. What's the problem with that? Well, if you live physically forever in sin, how do you get to heaven? I know how you get to heaven. You don't. God said, I need to get him away from this tree. It's imperative that you don't read Genesis 3 and hear God saying, I need to get him away from me. Because that's not what he said. He said, I need to get him from the tree, lest he take it and live forever. God doesn't want Adam to live forever in sin. He can't come to heaven. But he's going to die. Well, now he can be redeemed because he's not going to eat of this tree. If he attempted to live forever by eating of the fruit, what fate would he have been trying to avoid? The reality is we always understood what death meant. It's precisely that we understand what death means that we are so concerned with the concept of spiritual death. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. When we leave the scene in the garden, humanity's existence on this earth will never again be the same because Adam has opened the door and sin has come in and death with it. And now that death will pass on to every man. The revelation of God unfolds a little bit at a time. And as we get more information, new concepts, we get additional information. But there's nothing we learn that's true that's ever contradicted by something we learn later. It can be opened up more, it can be illuminated more, but it never contradicts. That's true of death as well. It's also true of all topics. God speaks of being married to his people and being jealous of their affection. Why do we understand that from a spiritual God? The reason we understand spiritual adultery Ezekiel 16, Hosea 1 through 4, the reason we understand that is because we first understood physical adultery. It's our understanding of a marriage that helps us to understand God being married to his people. He doesn't say that first. We learn this first. And it's this relationship that God uses because we understand it to help us understand his relationship with us. It works that way with everything in the Bible. First the natural, then the spiritual. And that's the way it works with death. Scripture teaches that there are two deaths. There are, however, three expressions to describe man. And one of them uses the word dead, but they're not the same. So let's look at these expressions or these two deaths. If you look in Ephesians chapter 2, 
the Apostle Paul will talk about the life of the Gentiles and the Jews formerly, before they obeyed the gospel. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And what happens is people read that as spiritually dead, spiritual death. That's the way they read that. That's not what Paul is saying. But he uses this language, and this is the expression I mean. There are two deaths and then three expressions. This is the expression to describe someone. Paul would also use this same language in 1 Timothy 5 and verse number 6, where concerning the younger widows, he would say, but she that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Paul's audience would have understood his meaning. The concept of dead in sins and dead while she lives is not to be interpreted as spiritually dead. Adam and Eve were not spiritually dead. This expression involves people who are physically alive, but in sin. And as a result of that, the father in Luke 15 can say of his younger son to his older son, Luke 15, 24, this my son was dead and is alive. So if you, if you take that concept that a person could be in sin and the Bible could say they're dead in sins and trespasses, and then if they obey the gospel, then they will be made alive. If they repent, they will be made alive. These debts of which we speak, this scenario does not exist. When you and I talk about death, physically and spiritually, the Bible says there's two of those. It doesn't count this in the same way it counts these others. When John writes the book of Revelation, John, the last author of the Bible, cannot write something here that would contradict anything in the first 65 books. And so John says there are two deaths. There are only two. Look at a couple of passages. First, Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh will not be hurt by the second death. Again, in Revelation 20 and verse number 6. Revelation 20 and verse number 6. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And then verse 14 of the same chapter. John tells us what happens with regards to the second death. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What's the second death, John says? Death and hell cast into the lake of fire. Chapter 21 and verse number 8. But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and adulterers and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. From John's writings, then, we cannot read the Bible and have three deaths. John says there's only two. And this one is the second one. 
We can't have three deaths, two of which are spiritual. We cannot have that. If Adam and Eve sinned and died spiritually, that's one death. They're still alive, though, but that's one death if they did that. If that's spiritual death, then they're spiritually dead. Okay, that's fine. But, but James says the body without the spirit is dead. Okay, so that's two. And then John says that if you take the soul at the end of all things and you cast it into the lake of fire, well, that's death. Well, that would be three. And John says that one is the second one. So then what's the first one? Well, that can only be what James says. That can only be the body without the spirit is dead. That spirit would go into eternity in the Hadean realm. That spirit then, if it is not right with God, once resurrected, would go there. That would be the second. So there can't be three deaths. Now, what does Paul say? Paul says dead in sins. He doesn't mean either one of those. And the reason I know that is when your body and your spirit leaves, there is nothing we can do for you. This is a permanent state. We have to take your body, put it in the grave, or do something with it. But your spirit's not coming back. If a soul is taken and cast into the lake of fire, that's permanent. Nothing we can do about that. That's death. This state, people are alive and dead in sins. We can fix this. This person can be born again. This person can be made alive. My son was dead. Well, he wasn't that. And he wasn't that. And yet, he was dead. How? In sins. Not spiritually dead. This is the first resurrection, John says, on those who have the first resurrection, the second death has no effect. What's the first resurrection? We're not there yet, but in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, what is it that it says? We die, we're buried, and we have a resurrection. Those who partake in the first resurrection, the second death has no effect on them. The reason is they're covered by the blood of Jesus. They're not going to the lake of fire. Those who have a part in the first resurrection. But those who partake in the first resurrection still have a mortal body. Romans 6, 11 and 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So that's not the spiritual body of 1 Corinthians 15 because it's sown when the body leaves, the soul leaves the body. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. Well, that's not Romans 6, 3 through 5 because verse 12 says you still have a mortal body after the first resurrection. By taking part in the first resurrection, you have no fear of the lake of fire. The problem with spiritual death in the garden, the problem it creates, is, is it forces the very mindset Paul is working against in the book of Romans. If in Genesis 3, and if you'll return, if in Genesis 3, at the first sin, Adam was in fellowship with God. We know Adam was in fellowship with God because of Genesis 2 and 
there is no sin yet when we close Genesis 2. In fact, verse 25 says the man was and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam and God are in relation, in a communion, in fellowship. Then we get to Genesis 3. And if Adam's first sin ends his fellowship with God, Adam sinned and he was separated from God. And if that becomes our standard definition, then what we do is each sin separates me from God. This is where we began that journey. Because Adam sinned, and then we say he was separated from God because his separation means death, therefore he's spiritually dead. Okay, one sin. You are one sin away from spiritual death. Because Adam was in fellowship with God, and he sinned one time. It's important to appreciate about Adam, you don't read a life of sin. You read one sin from a child of God. And if that one sin from a child of God moves him, separates him from God, and causes him to be spiritually dead, if you walk out of the garden with that concept and you just keep walking, you are going to struggle with your relationship with God. Because every person after Adam is one sin away from separation from God. Question, once you establish this mindset, how are you going to keep from dying? How are you going to stay in fellowship? I'll tell you how you're going to do it. You're going to have to keep the law. And how are you going to have to keep the law? You're going to keep perfectly. What's this going to do to your mind? This is where your journey will begin. You're going to now walk out of this garden, and this very concept is going to create a mind of law-keeping. And every time you sin, you're going to have to be out. There's no other place you could be. You sin, you're out. How do you know that? Because Adam sinned, and he was out. And one sin causes you to be spiritually dead and separated from God. How do you get back? Then you say you're sorry and get back in. And now you try harder to keep the law. And how does it work? How does it begin to measure up? This will cause you to interpret other passages in the support of this view. And as you read the rest of the Bible... The passages you read will say this very thing to you, even if they don't say it. They will to you because you're going to need to be consistent. In fact, look at Isaiah 59 and see if it won't say it to you. It'll support this very thought. Isaiah 59, how many times have God's children quoted the passage with reference to them, and they say things like, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy or dull, so that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have done what? Made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And what happens? But that's exactly what happened to Adam. He sinned, and God put him out. And Isaiah 59 says the same thing. Does it, though? 
Hold your finger there and turn back to chapter 1. And, and let me ask you if this describes Adam in your mind. Listen, O heavens, verse number 2. Hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows his owner, a donkey his master's manager. Israel doth not know. My people do not understand. Alas, a sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where you will you be stricken again? You continue to rebel. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing. Is this the way you read Adam? Is, is that the description of Adam for you in Genesis chapter 3? It is for the audience that Isaiah writes to. And this is what will happen. You will make no distinction between faithful children of God who stumble and rebellious children of God who turn away. As you read this concept of one sin and you're out, these two groups will be the exact same. A faithful child of God who stumbles is the same as a rebellious child of God who turns his heart away, worships the idols, and casts his children to Molech. These are the same people. They are not the same people. The apostles and the prophets are not writing these kinds of words to faithful children of God. They're writing these kinds of words to children of God who either have already or are in the process of completely rebelling and turning away from God. We do the same thing in the New Testament. There is a passage, 2, Tim, 2 Peter 2. You've probably heard it once or twice. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Peter says, or verse 20 rather, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled there and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness after they have known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow after washing returns to the wallowing in the mire. Remember, it only takes one sin to be that. Because one sin is all Adam committed. And what happened? Separated from God, spiritually dead. And with that in mind, you could read 2 Peter 2, 20 to 22 and say, see, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And I would ask again, but does it? You see how many times the word they is in these passages? It begins there in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled there and overcome the last way, become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandments delivered unto them. It's happened to them. Well, who's the them and who's the they? You know, to get that, we'd have to go back to chapter 2 and verse number 1. What would we find if we read it in the context? Chapter 2 and verse 1 would open with these words. But there are false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, 
who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from a long time is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God spare not, and then from verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, all these examples of rebellion, the angels in verse number 4 rebelled. The ancient world of Noah rebelled. Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled. Lot was righteous, verse number 7. He rescued righteous Lot. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, there was a righteous man in Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, his name was Lot. Was Lot sinless? Did Lot keep things with God perfectly? And yet, the Bible calls him righteous. Furthermore, Peter is not talking about faithful people. He's not talking about a child of God who stumbles. He's talking about false teachers bringing in damnable heresies and some people loving to have it so and following them out. But what about the people who remain? We would have to say that either these people who remain are perfect or they're just like these people, and no matter what it is, they're one sin away. There's a difference between a faithful child of God committing an act of sin and a child of God ceasing to be faithful, turning their heart away from God and walking away from Him. Two different things. And as a result of that, the Bible treats those things differently. Look at 1 John chapter 1. We will have, and we do have, we continue to have an enormous amount of challenge with this verse. Why do we have such an enormous amount of challenge with this verse? Because of what we do in Genesis 3 with Adam. And yet, the verse is intended to be a verse of comfort and peace and help. Verse number 7 of 1 John 1, John says, but if we walk, please understand, the walk is just that. It's the whole life. It's not one action. It's the life. And it's the location of where the walk is occurring. John says, verse number 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So if over here is sin and sinfulness, John says, if you walk in that, and you say, and while I'm walking in this sin and darkness, God and I are on good terms. God and I are in fellowship. John says, you are lying. There is not a person walking in darkness in fellowship with God. Not a one. There's nobody who can walk in darkness, live in darkness, and have fellowship. You can't do that. On the other hand, what if you walk in the light? Verse 7 says, but in contrast to that, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. If we stop the verse there, we will stop the verse at fellowship. People who walk in the light are in fellowship with God. Now we have to deal with what happens if one of those people sin. If we start in Genesis 3 and say, one sin and you're out because that's what God did to Adam. He sinned one time and he was separated and spiritually dead. Well, we have fellowship. How do we lose it? 
according to that position, it would only take a sin. Here's the problem. That's not what verse 7 says. And that becomes our difficulty. What's the rest of verse 7 say? If we walk in the light, as he is in light, we have fellowship, got that, with one another. And there's an and to the fellowship. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Where did the sin occur? In the light. Where did the cleansing occur? In the light. When did the person in verse 7 get into darkness? When did the person in verse 7 get separated from God? If we start in Genesis 3 with Adam, and we have one sin separated. Coincidentally, Luke 3.38, on that genealogy that goes all the way back to Adam, it ends with this expression. And Adam, who was the son of God. When you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're reading the son of God. That's Adam. And the son of God sinned one time. And if you take a son of God who sinned one time and move him into darkness and separate him from God, we will have an impossible time trying to apply 1 John 1, 7, which is why we struggle so much to do so. It goes deeper, though, and it, it creates even more challenges because the verse says, death pass on to all men. If the death in Genesis 3 is spiritual, then you can't stop it from passing on to all men. You don't get to say it's spiritual and then say people aren't born spiritually dead. Because Paul says Adam's sin brought death and death passed on to all men. If that's spiritual death, then all men are born spiritually dead. If it's physical death or just death, then every man is born into a world where every man will die. One of those is the only way the verse can be understood. A death passed on to all men. This uh, also makes us do some, some challenging things when it comes to Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. Uh, because we are going to be consistent. And so if sin separates you, and then the Bible refers to Jesus as being, in some passages, it reads like Jesus is sin. Uh, you won't have much of a choice but to separate Jesus from God, and so we do that. And I'm going to run out of time before we get to talk about that. But we'll come back to it next week. I'm sorry I left you an entire minute to ask questions, but if you have any, we'll take them in 60 seconds. <laughs> That's unfair to you. So what you should do is if you do have questions, take some time to think about it. We said a mouthful tonight. But if you'll spend a week thinking about it, and if you'll come back next Wednesday, and if you do have some questions, I'll do my best to try to go back over it. 
I owe you that much. I shouldn't throw you all this information in and not give you a chance to question it. So if you do, please come back and we'll do the best we can.